In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. If the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%, that impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. So welcome back, everybody. We have a guest today who emailed us um, who's been a fan of the podcast, apparently, who does something that Harriet and I know nothing about, which is called ecological engineering, or she's uh, pursuing a PhD in ecological engineering. Her name is uh, Sam Francis. And um, Sam, could you maybe just start by telling us what your background is, like what that, what this academic pursuit is, um, what it applies to? Yeah, for sure. That's like a really common um, question because there's there's like environmental engineering and um, I don't know, civil, like it, yeah, and environmental science and ecology anyway. Um, so ecological engineering, I would say, is like kind of an, a newer field in the grand scheme of things. I'd call it maybe like, I don't know, 40, 50 years old. Um, and the the idea, a really nice definition that I like by Mitch and Jorgensen, um, is it's the design of human society with its natural environment for the benefit of both. Um, and I'd say... Mm-hmm in some ways that, that like guiding principle, it, it almost seems cult-like at times, but like thinking about how the environment feels, which mm. sounds really fluffy. And I'm sure the engineers would, would like be abhorred by me saying that, but um, yeah, working with the environment instead of simply changing it in a way that would help us. So a really common ecological engineering practices, um, like building wetlands and restoring wetlands in order to filter wastewater or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, trap, trap runoff from agriculture, stuff like that. Um, so I'd say wetlands is like the big example of how we apply this practice. That's not what I do, but it's easier, Mm -hmm. I think, to understand. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. So, so sort of designing wet, just as one example, designing wetlands um, with wastewater in mind. Okay. But that's not what you do. What do you do? Um, So I am involved in agricultural runoff. A lot of, I think the easiest application of ecological engineering is um, water quality treatment and I, I'm here in Ohio at the Ohio State University, as they say, um, mm. where it used to be one very large swamp. It was called the Great Black Swamp. And humans are really cool and they like to make the environment work for them. So they drained all of it. Um, and it that makes for really good agricultural land because wetlands are very high in nutrients in their soil. So the ground here is really productive, but that also means that we destroyed the thing that treats agricultural runoff. Um, So what I do, sorry, that's such a long explanation, but what I do is I'm evaluating technology used to treat um, agricultural runoff. I try to look at kind of the entire amount of energy from cradle to grave and like in the formation of, you know, how, how much energy it takes even to um, create nutrient uh, absorption technologies and like engineer that and then ship it over to a place and then install it. I look at all of the energy of all of that and compare it to how effective that technology is. How good is it? at meeting its nutrient goals. Um, and I, I kind of, in that sense, I'm trying to find a way to compare apples and oranges <laughs> for nutrient treatment. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot because I'm just thinking, can you tie that into the bigger question of the destruction of the globe? Yeah, I mean, so I, I love looking at systems. I like agricultural systems. I like human systems. And I think the most interesting part of a system is how energy moves through it. Um, so energy and power, right? I would almost consider these two different things. And if we look at the destruction of the globe, we're, we're pouring all of this energy 
into things that are keeping our society running on, you know, full force, all cylinders going. um, And the power within our society is directing it towards, um, you know, processes that benefit them, such as continuing to drill oil wells and and continuing to grow corporations and continuing to invade other countries, et cetera, to procure more energy, to continue accruing power for very few people. And and I think uh, that's how climate change happened. And uh, maybe just a a quick background for listeners of how this conversation emerged, because... um, I mean, somewhat similar to, what's his name, Justin Rosniak, who's a civil engineer who we spoke to maybe a month ago or so. Mm-hmm. At face value, you might think, oh, well, what is civil engineering? Like, wh- are there even any possible intersections between like civil engineering and mental health? And that's supposedly what we're talking about here. Um, and so ecological engineering and the, descri- the destruction of the globe and uh, mental health, right? So um, in the initial email that Sam had sent us, if you don't mind, Sam, I'm going to just read a, a tiny segment of the email that you you sent us, um, that you described what you do a little bit, and then you said you care deeply about climate change, uh, that you believe the solution is large-scale centralized economic planning. You think most people would agree with that conclusion if they kind of like understood what's what's needed to kind of prevent the, the worst of the worst catastrophes, except uh, it's probably hard for them to get past the, the, the fact that that sounds like communism, right? Um, and you kind of like went through toward the end and, and saying that, um, uh, you know, that worrying about climate change is, um, it's a really big issue for a lot of people and it's not in our heads, right? Like this is actually a massively outside of our heads issue that's causing a lot of people a lot of anxiety and depression. And I would agree that like probably clinical levels of anxiety and depression, but it's something that is, one of the least talked about things um, in the mental health field, as well as I would think probably in ecology of like the psychological effects of what it's like to understand the gravity of the crisis. So, um, so anyway, just to tie it all in, right? Like there's um, the ecological crises outside of our heads and then the way that that impacts us, the more we actually understand what's going on. Um, So, I mean, can you speak at all to that just either from your personal experience or with colleagues or anyone else, you know, like that, anxiety or even the the effects on your mental health of understanding how bad the crisis is? So just as like an example of the types of conversations my friends and I have, and my friends are also in environmental science, um, mm-hmm. we talk about why we're not having kids. And, and it's, you know, not really about finances for us. It's that we don't think that the planet would be very good for them. And we don't think having them would be very good for the planet, which that was a thing I started thinking about when I was like 15, which is wild. Like, that's not a responsibility that children should have is thinking about the the harm of their children. Um, so, yeah, it's just yeah. it's it's uh, depressing, I guess, to think, mm-hmm. you know, the it feels like we are robbed in a way. Um, we're robbed of, of having, you know, this beautiful future. I feel like we were all promised and, and sure we could talk about the environment, but like um, kind of a separate but related issue is like, you know, we were also promised if we went to college, we'd have um, careers. We would almost be guaranteed employment. And so many of my friends are, are still living with their parents, um, struggling to find a job that pays more than minimum wage, despite having a bachelor's in science. And, and like the only next step that they can think of is going to grad school or something, because, you know, what else are they going to do? Sorry, back to climate change. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's all interconnected. Yeah, it, it's just it's um, it's crazy working with a bunch of environmental scientists, all of us having these different projects that we focus on that are meant to benefit the environment, but still feeling so disempowered and, and I don't know, unable to do anything to affect this situation. Um, Mm -hmm. Like we, in our classes, you know, I'm in a lot of uh, classes still, and we'll have discussions about what can we do? 
Um, so like in a behavioral theory class, we were talking about what, what types of behaviors can we encourage to help with climate change? And the, the mm. focus of that discussion is like, how can we get more people to recycle? Right? Um, like what, what can we do to get people to buy electric vehicles? And, and it just like, it makes my jaw drop because looking at the recycling system, it's, it's not efficient. In most places, it's defunct. Um, like, it, it takes far more energy than it should. And we're ending up scrapping most of what we send to a recycling plant. So, like, what's the point of getting, of guilting people into recycling because they're making the planet worse, right? By not recycling. What's the point of doing that if recycling doesn't work? You know, um, mm, mm. what's the point of making someone feel bad because they're too poor to afford an electric vehicle if the amount of energy that it takes to create an electric vehicle isn't worth the amount that it saves while it's running? It's it's just mm. such a it seems like such a, a small, I don't know, small minded conversation. I think, though, that that that's kind of what neoliberalism does, like our only options are. What, what can we buy to make this better? What can we choose to do? Like, can I, can I commit to a plant-based diet? You know, can I make sure that I'm not running my heat in the winter? And at the end of the day, mm. I'm not saying that those things are bad. Of course, they have a cumulative beneficial effect. But, you know, guilting a bunch of liberals into being plant-based isn't going to do anything about, um, you know, stopping the Amazon from burning down, right? I, they would argue it does because that land's being burned down for agriculture, but it's like, right. But what corporation is making that happen? Like, you know, mm. when, when we're invading other countries, like, why are we doing that? Who's getting this oil? Like, it doesn't matter if you're putting it in your car, if we're killing a billion people to get it. Yeah. It's, it's just, so I guess, sorry, to, to get back to the original question, <laughs> on, <laughs> I, I move in a billion different directions looking at these systems, sorry. Um, back to the original question, you know, we're, we're guilt tripping, uh, you know, millions of people about changing their behavior when, you know, they can't even afford to take care of their family, much less take some extra time to sort out the recyclables. Like they don't know where their meals coming from. Why are they going to choose the vegan one? Um, so to me, you know, as, as an environmental scientist, I feel like a lot of energy is being focused on trying to change the wrong part of this problem. Right. Um, mm. And yeah. making people feel worse about a thing that they can't do anything about. Yeah, and it doesn't really show them their common ground. Part of the problem is people have to face that it's capitalism. And whatever makes a profit at less cost for a capitalism, for a capitalist, makes more money for him or her. And so if burning down the Amazon allows the... the um, farming interests to make more money, all the damage to the ecosystem is collateral damage for them. Mm -hmm. And so that what we'd have to do to unify people rather than make them feel guilty about their individual habits is to tie together the destruction of the planet and the destruction of their lives in unemployment and unchecked plague and so on. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the parallel between U.S. capitalism's treatment of COVID and treatment of the ecosystem, it costs, in order to make a profit, you have to turn over goods, you have to invest carefully, and you have to limit your costs. And that has nothing to do with the ecosystem. That's what capitalism is and does, not because the individual's are bad people personally, but because that's the name of the game they're playing. Mm -hmm. And so that's the name of the game we can't play if we want to save the globe. And a good way of looking at it that occurs to me as you talk, and if I'm talking too much, tell me, <laughs> is that 
you know, if you look at the money you'd have to put aside to make sure that the ecosystem is safe and that people aren't befouling the earth and that corporations aren't doing so for their profit, you'd have to look at saving the earth the way you look at something else important in America, something that they're not doing in other areas like health, which is in the military, we don't care if we turn over the goods right away. We don't care if we have to warehouse them and store them and pay for that and pay cost plus contracts to the military contractors Mm -hmm. because it's worth it for them. And it's not worth it for them for our health to store protective equipment. And it's not worth it for them for our globe to create ecologically sane alternatives. Mm -hmm. And they won't unless we attack the system in which the rules are make more profit for less cost by whatever means necessary. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you need a united class-based anti-capitalist movement of which ecology should be a very big part because what I was thinking about when I read your description, Sam, is that you're talking about the right to life. They shouldn't have that slogan. We should. The right to healthy food, the right to clean air, the right to clean water, the right to a planet. That's the right to life. And capitalism robs you of the right to life. And I think that that unites people who would be not affording an electric car and not wanting to recycle when they read articles about most of the recycling that people do. They just throw the plastic in the ocean anyway. But that stops that kind of thinking, that stops that being good business, that stops that being the way to succeed. And that's an anti-capitalist message. And while I'm hogging the air, (laughs) I also think that most people aren't consciously aware that they're destroying the planet. But it's part of the backdrop that makes people leave, dissociate, go somewhere else in their mind so they don't have to see it. Like they don't want to see that capitalism is robbing them and they don't want to see so many other things that are bad news. And so they put that off. However, it still haunts you. The things that you think you're escaping are the things for which you want relief through addiction, let's say, that makes the world look better, Mm -hmm. even if it destroys the world and you. But I think it's an anti-capitalist union that's needed, including a strong voice for the planet as part of the right to life. Speech ended. I, man, I have so much. Sam, unless you got something, I have some burning things. Oh, I, I do, but I can, I can uh, come back to it. So go ahead. No, 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 no. You no, we 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 got we got you for today. You gotta you go. <laughs> um yeah, I mean Harriet, while while you were talking, that reminded me of again that behavioral theory class. That class made me want to bang my head against the table. But it was it was really interesting and um, you know, it's a lot about behavior change, like I said, and what to get people to do in order to benefit the environment. And you know, I I made the point a few times in that class why are we trying to, why are we trying to, you know, make the poor change their behaviors when the rich have a disproportionate impact? One of the big discussions for that class, literally our first class was about overpopulation, which is something, you know, that, that was really pushed by eugenicists. That was like its huge origin. Um, Thomas Harding, Mm -hmm. who talked about the tragedy of the commons was a eugenicist and believed that, people in Africa should essentially be forcibly sterilized because they were going to um, destroy the planet, right? So, you know, we we have a bunch of environmental scientists who have bought into the idea of overpopulation and, like, what can we do to solve that? Um, and I said to my teacher, like, well, what about, what about these rich people who are 
owning, you know, 15 houses and four yachts. Like that kind of seems like the thing that we should be attacking. Right. And she said, well, you know, if, if you can get the people who are running corporations to adopt this environmentally friendly mentality, that that could have a huge impact. And back to what you were saying, Harriet, they don't have a choice. They can't run a company if they're not maximizing their profits, right? It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter if if they're gay or or if they're a person of color. Like their backstory doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, they're beholden to their shareholders and they're beholden to That's this right. quarter and they're beholden to improving their bottom line. So if it's cheaper for them to ship material to China and then get children in factories there to create whatever trinket and then bring that back to the U.S., that's what they're going to do. And they'll sure. recycle while, while they do it. Mm-hmm. Sure, they'll recycle, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're not going to get in the way of their bottom line. Right. And to, to me, it's, well, let's see. So it's very depressing. I'm very depressed thinking about this. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Because um, my initial kind of entry into activism generally, like when I became this sort of OCD, always doing activism all the time kind of person, was actually with a class with a professor named David Cleveland at University of California, Santa Barbara, um, called World Agriculture. And I didn't quite know what I was getting myself into. It actually just sort of fit some criteria for anthropology, which was my undergrad, as well as um, global studies, which was like a a sub check mark thing I needed to finish my BA as well as um, quantitative reasoning, which is a sort of like almost like using math to reason kind of thing. So it, it filled all three of these check boxes and I was like, Oh great. I'll sign up for that class. Cause I, I meet all three check boxes and I didn't realize the extent to which I would be learning about how fucked everything is. Um, and, and so from a world agriculture standpoint, if you think of like, well, where does food come from? And, you know, you work in agriculture. So, um, it kind of started out with him just explaining to us that um, the vast majority of food in the world actually comes from small scale farmers um, who are, you know, there's, there's a little bit more sort of indigenous and small scale, um, you know, not city based, not urban based, um, like human beings that have used traditional methods for a really long time. And those methods tend to be pretty sustainable because they've probably been used for a really long time. Um, But those, those ways of producing food have been sort of under assault for like, you know, a century or so. Um, and all the sort of corporate forces that have been pushing for that, but then getting into all the the ecological consequences of the ways in which water is being misused, um, that like diversity of seeds and anyway, all the, all the environmental stuff that I'm sure, you know, you know, probably better than anyone else. Um, but then getting to the actual climate crisis and the ways in which like now that the feedback cycles are, are going to be built into the environment for a long time where it's like, even if you try to use like the coolest methods of, you know, agro, you know, permaculture type agroecology and everything, it's like the crop failures are, are inevitable anyway. The insect populations are already going to be exponentially rising and they're going to be like wiping out all the, you know, all the monocrops. So like really, and then, and then also with sea level rise of like any, um, like coastal ways of living, like the, the gravity of the climate crisis, when I first started wrapping my head around it, like launched me into like, okay, I need to like change my life, not just in, on an individual scale. Like I got rid of my car and started biking everywhere and like taking the bus and, and train when I visited people. And I did all these individual things, um, knowing that they weren't enough and they really weren't going to make a difference. But then I was like, I need to throw all my life into this like activism stuff, um, which eventually in, in evolved into me kind of becoming this like commie weirdo. But like along the way, I think um, it having this like intense effect on me and other people I've talked to where, I mean, I had two friends in particular who, when they first started learning about this, I remember really distinctly them both seeming actually like their, their, their bodies were hunched over and they were making less eye contact. And they, we started engaging in discussions where we felt very alone, where like the three of us could only talk amongst the three of, each of us to, to discuss like how depressed we felt about how bad it was. Um, and that we did, and that we also found that when we wanted to talk about these things with people, there's a sort of, to bring it back to the psychology, there's a sort of cognitive dissonance where I think um, because it's so, um, there's so much pain in actually acknowledging how bad it is and how, um, basically useless the proposed solutions are from the corporate 
the corporate mm-hmm. world, the NGO world, the universe, you know, any, any place where you look where there's institutional power, like telling you, here's what you need to do. There's such useless solutions that I think you either have to like be sort of enraged and say, this is a bunch of bullshit. We need to like overhaul the whole system and we need like a mass based, you know, set of methods to get there. Or you have, or you have to kind of go into denial and say like, look, Maybe it is that bad, but you only live once, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of be as like hedonistic as I can for the limited time I have on this planet, and you know, I don't know, drugs, drugs, sex, rock and roll kind of thing, um, and just say fuck it, um, or you have to just deny that it's that bad at all, and just say like it can't really be that bad. I mean, humans have lived through all kinds of crises for thousands of years, like, yeah. you know what I mean? And so there's like this, there's a set of these complex set of psychological effects where I feel like. Um, like you're sort of trapped, and and I've kind of said this on the podcast before, but how um, if you actually look at the DSM definitions of certain so-called mental disorders, I mean, I think for severe depression, if you go like hopelessness, fatigue, self-blame, you can actually you could probably diagnose someone with major depressive disorder just from them like focusing on the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually think you could fit a definite a, a, a diagnosis from that if you really got into it. Um, and I don't, I, I too don't know where I'm going with this because this is what we do on the podcast. We ramble, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's been deeply, um, I've actually fluctuated back and forth myself for like, I've, I've actually, this sounds, this sounds fucked up, but I've actually like thrown things in the trash in st- instead of the recycling specifically because what you were saying earlier, where I say, fuck the recycle bin, like that's such a waste of my time. And I actually throw it into the trash knowing that it's recyclable specifically from what you said. Right. Um, which maybe is like aggressive male behavior or something. I don't know. Um, but it's been like a, like a coping mechanism in a certain way. Um, based on all, on all that, I mean, do you, I mean, I guess either of you just in this conversation, like where do we go with this, with the psychological impacts of all this? Like it is actually really depressing. Right. And like, we don't see um, the best solutions being promoted in most circles. No, we'd have to create a different circle. And I think what we'd have to do is give people hope in a kind of, in a movement that would address this as part of a unified thrust, because otherwise, if you look at every single problem separately, the way Sam says is our culture tends to do, rather than part of a systemic failure that cobbles them together, you get what Bruce Alexander calls ego exhaustion that leads to mm. the desire for relief right now, which is addiction, that mm-hmm. you have to say, okay, I can't do this alone, but I am part of humanity and we've got to get it together to address the common ills that capitalism spawns so mm. that we have a chance here yeah. as people mm-hmm. in connection to change because one of the things, and then I'll stop lecturing, but one of the things that trauma is, trauma is a terrible experience without anyone around to process it, hold it for you and help you see what's going on and what to do. And if we can help people through this awful crisis that we're in on so many levels, by tying the things together with a multifaceted anti-capitalist program will give people hope and connection. And so it won't be so depressing. I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's really interesting interacting with other people on this topic, people who aren't in environmental science, because I, I think most of us in environmental science agree we're, we're fucked. Like, and I, I don't mean that in, in a pessimistic way. I mean that in a realistic sense, the amount of catastrophe that the human race is about to experience and is already experiencing, it it's going to be a lot. It is a lot. It's overwhelming. And I mean, this sounds crazy, but that idea gives me hope um, because I, I think the only... I see two options, right? One is we all come together as a collective and we mm-hmm. we join up and we take care of the most vulnerable and we repair the infrastructure and build infrastructure that will 
you know, keep, keep tragedy away from us, or at least make it less severe, right? That's one option. And then the other option is Elon Musk builds us a bunch of spaceships and the top 0.0000001% get to go to Mars, right? So it's like, okay, well, hopefully, hopefully we can all come together then. If if not, we'll mm. be stuck with Earth's uh, rubble and that's, you know, that's going to be something we have to deal with. But <laughs> But maybe we'll deal with that collectively then. We don't need the top 0.01%, right? Um, so, so mm-hmm. sorry, where this thought started was it's interesting talking to other people about this and acknowledging that mm-hmm. we are stuck in, in a positive feedback loop at this point. Things are going to get more and more severe, especially if we don't reach, you know, whatever mm-hmm. kind of arbitrary carbon a decrease or carbon capture goal that we've set it's it's just gonna get worse um and when i say that to people they go that's really upsetting (laughs) right which is understandable like just talking to you guys about it yeah it's really upsetting um but then it's interesting to see what happens after that because either they you know, they agree and they're depressed or <laughs> they think that there's <laughs> a technological solution and they're not wrong. That's not a wrong thought to have. There are plenty, there are billions of solutions. We could solve climate change. We could repair infrastructure. We could, you know, bring society together right now if we wanted to. Um, but mm. there's a question of will. And so, I've seen recently with with the rollout of, you know, this idea of autonomous vehicles. Well, if we have autonomous electric vehicles, like that's it, right? We got it. We just solved climate change because it's a renewable energy and people can get to work now, right? Like that's good. And they're sharing their cars. That's really good, right? Um, Or there's, there's a thought of, 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 like I was saying, sending people to space, right? Like, well, we don't even need this planet. We'll just all hop on a ship and, and fly away. And so it's, <laughs> it's, this, mm-hmm. it's interesting because the idea of acting collectively is seen as a utopian naivety. But the idea of technologically solving our way out of this in an equitable and distributed way, that seems mm. like... Like it's on the table for for most people, and I think the reason why you know folks, I I see this especially with libertarians, they're they'll accept a technological saviorism is because that means that they can buy their way to safety, mm. right? We can just purchase our way out of this, like we purchase our way out of every problem, and and that will save the human race, and and it's a really mm it's almost more disheartening to see people who buy into that framework because the conclusion I've come to is we absolutely cannot manufacture our way out of this. Any thought of, of, you know, rolling out a new technology, unless, unless it is something with like carbon capture, I think that's worth manufacturing, but like making more cars Mm. is not going to help. And like making new washing machines isn't going to help. Retrofitting existing technology and investing energy and resources ensuring up public infrastructure, like that's it. We need to focus on what we have here already. Um, so in, anyway, it's it's really mm-hmm. interesting, you know, when you talk about climate change to people, it it's like, well, we'll we'll figure it out. We'll you know, we innovate and uh, mm-hmm. we produce things and we're really good at that. And then the economy can keep growing and that's really good too. And it's, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of the wall that I hit in conversations with most normal people is, no, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I well, think... And how do you... No, go ahead, Harriet. I also think you're talking to people in America... I think, you know, look, 
the Chinese, with all their problems, they have solved COVID because they act together, and they also are converting very rapidly to non-carbon forms of energy because they act as a collective of that one. 0.393 or billion people. And I think one of the things that we're struggling against is that Americans are politically trained not to hope for collective action. In high school, we read Animal Farm. We read Brave New World. We read 1984. We read about the atrocities of Stalin, but not about the millions of people dying of hunger in capitalist systems. We don't, you know, learn about how the cooperative economy of Mondragon is a miracle and wonderful or any of those things. And so we're kind of trained not to think we can build something together. And yet, you know, and all of those books that I mentioned, Crushing Utopian Hopes, are post-war books. But I also think that where there is a strong message, as there is starting to be in terms of the mass of Generation Z people preferring socialism, people see that we've got to get out of this mess and we won't get out unless we get out together. It's it's not like mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos spending $500 million getting himself to outer space while he systematically cuts the lives of the people who work for him. No, we're all those people and we have the power. And I think we have to re-educate ourselves to hope because there's such a mm -hmm. drumming out of possibility that we experience. And if you look at, as Aldous Huxley says, the mind is a regulating valve on reality, we have to regulate that valve so the reality of collective action is encouraged as it was in the south to vote against trump and elsewhere we can do it i'm i'm gonna um yes to hope yeah also a book i'm gonna drop a book title uh, active hope by joanna macy um it's a good like she differentiates between like passive hope of people like sitting around eating chips and watching TV and saying like, you know, I think things might get better versus like, I need to throw myself actively into all the things to, you know, so that that's like active hope. And she has, and it's specifically about the climate crisis. So yes, that, and I'm going to say more depressing stuff just because, you know, let's be real, man. Um, also, because when Sam's email mentioned uh, centralized planning and that if people could only get past that sounding like communism, you know, then maybe we could get somewhere. Because I think the other like yes, we need collective action. I mean, imagine if we if we had labor, if we had a labor movement so strong that we could actually general strike for the climate in the U.S. I think that could probably do it. Yep. You know, if you had like ten ten percent of labor unionized, like ten percent of the economy shut down for a week, saying like we demand X Y Z, like you'd probably that's enough. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't. We don't even have a fraction of you know it's like three percent or I forget what the percent is. Of, of unionized labor. Well, plus most of the seven. unions are so... It's is it seven. seven? Do we have seven? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's a lot higher than I thought. Seven, but but it, even even, it's even that... To ins yeah. Exactly. Yeah. There are unions that will never do any... I mean, yeah, the unions where I live, and there's any listeners that are in Santa Barbara, uh, whether... I'm, I'll just I'll just call them out right now. SEIU, UCFW, uh, or is it UFCW? I always say it wrong. UAW, they're all weak. It's weak mm -hmm. leadership. They're, they're weak. They're not trying to do anything to make the world better. I'm just going to say it. And somebody can email me and say, that's really messed up. And I'll say, cool, let's have a meeting <laughs> and let's see if we can get some fire into your union. Um, but like, but in all seriousness, but that's not just where I live. That's like most, mm. um, most, you know, I'm sure Sarah Nelson or, J you know, Jane McAlevey, I bet they'd all yes. agree. They'd say, yeah, we need to, I mean, they'd, they'd have a better PR way of saying this, but like our labor is so weak. But anyway, the, the other thing is like with, with a centralized plan, like, because the thing is, even if you had sort of different regions, like I think of where I live, if I have Santa Barbara County, just in California, and people think of California as like, oh, hippies that care about climate change or whatever. But if you have like three separate counties having three separate, like totally separate plans of how they're going to decrease carbon in the next 10 years, mm -hmm. and just one of those counties is totally bullshit wrong on their approach, like they're scientifically batshit crazy wrong, and they're, it's it's not going to work, mm -hmm. you've, you've just screwed it up for all three counties, right? Like 
you, you actually yeah. need a coordinated effort across like massive region, like like bioregions, like within and across bioregions for it to actually work, which does mean centralized planning. I mean, it basically means like almost the old school communism, uh, not necessarily like Soviet or Chinese communism, but like you need something like that. Um, and I, I just, I do, the other thing that kind of kills my hope, this is just a <laughs> therapy session for me, guys, just so you know, um, is that I think when you look at, like if you look at the mass uh, disinformation campaigns that the corporate world has pushed into, um, and it's ongoing generally, I think, whether it's libertarianism or um, just uh, anti-labor sentiments, just certain bizarre conservative ev- evangelical, like there's so many swaths of sort of um, demographics in the U.S. that have been like hijacked psychologically to just feed them total bullshit um, to the detriment of everyone else that we have, there's such a massive base in the U S that is just so opposed to even having a a clear headed conversation about something like climate change and just climate change as one issue that even if you could get to the point of like really strong, uh, government intervention, which we've had some forms of that in some ways, like even the, you know, even Obama, like Obama wasn't great, but like getting the climate accord thing, like, Mm -hmm. okay, step in the right direction, I guess, like better than nothing. Um, like you, you get such a backlash from people saying like, you know what, I'm going to eat as much beef as I want. I'm going to, um, what are those images of those guys with the big pickup trucks with like the black exhaust coming out Mm -hmm. of just this like teenagerly contrarian, like, you know what, fuck you. I'm just going to like destroy the environment because I don't because the government's bad, right? Like we actually have such a strong culture of that in the US that that it's another point of severe depression. <laughs> right? Like how do you even get past that, right? Um Well, I think So Bernie anyway, did. my dear therapists. Anyway, I think Bernie did get past that for a lot of people. And when Bernie was on Fox News, yeah. the audience loved it so much he was never allowed <laughs> on again because True. It, true. If you give people things they desperately need, like Medicare for all or cost increases in Social Security or Green New Deal jobs with decent salaries or any of the other Mm -hmm. things people desperately need in this society, you would get the allegiance of a lot of people because People's idea, there's a minority of people who thinks freedom is like not obeying the red light, just going right through because you feel like even if they're going to get killed, but uh, and they'll kill other people. But there is murder is freedom. Yep. Freedom to murder. But there's a small minority of hyper masculine people involved in that and the mass of the American people are in desperate shape and somebody who could help them out and could show a program of achievable Medicare for all and jobs and clean air and clean water and safe pensions would be very popular and climate change would have to be part of that. Bless you. Climate change would have to be a part of that because that seems so much bigger than people can encompass and it would have to be integrated into that analysis. But I think people want very badly to hope for something. That's why they get involved in a lot of religions where they think they're going to heaven. They're hoping Jesus loves them. Uh, Well, and and kind of to build off your point, I, I think that's been a thoughtful effort to, to reshape our definition of freedom, right? That, that was intentional, it was, you know, advocated for mm. by an elite few who who want to shape the discussion of of you know minimizing our government so that it plays as small a role in regulating businesses as possible. But you know, I I think like you're saying, the narrative needs to be changed and it should be freedom from. Like, let's have freedom from starvation and homelessness, and you know, taking care of our kids and um dying because we right. couldn't you know get like a tooth taken out or something um yeah it's it's, it's just a concerted effort is needed to to really think about you know what what's within the realm of possibility and if 
if y'all don't mind, I, I have kind of another, I think, interesting anecdote to share about dreaming. Oh, um, good. So good. Please. I took a sustainable share. Um, I took a sustainable agriculture class and I, I really loved it because it was the first time um, an environmental scientist has talked about labor to me. Um, and it's like, I'm, a, I'm all about that. Let's talk about labor. Um, so in the National Academy of Sciences definition of sustainable agriculture, they had four different components that need to be balanced. And if you balance those four, you've achieved sustainability. Um, I might mess up exactly what they are, but it, it was something to the effect of, uh, are you producing enough food to, to feed people and meet our um, our needs, food, fiber, fodder, right? So that's one component. Um, are the laborers being taken care of? That's a different component. Um, are you making enough of a profit to, to keep this going? That's another one. And then the environment. So if you balance these four things, you've achieved agricultural sustainability. So we were left in class to, to meditate on that for a couple minutes and think about what it would take to turn our current agricultural system into a sustainable one. <laughs> and I said, I said, what if we took the economic part out of it? What if we didn't have to turn a profit what if, what if we could just produce things at the rate that people need them in order to eat and, you know, live somewhere? Um, and farmers don't have to worry about making an income. They can just have access to all of the conservation practices they need in order to sustainably produce this agriculture. What if we did that? And my teacher looked at me and was like... I, I, that would be cool. That's not really an option though, right? <laughs> and I was like, well, why, why not though? Like, why aren't we talking about that? Why aren't we talking about, you know, right. dreaming big here and, and thinking about what it would actually take to, to, you know, resolve this? Because my, my experience in agriculture and working with farmers is farmers are, are demonized. They are pointed to and, and you know, farmers are producing, I think it's one of the highest carbon producing sectors of our economy, aside from our military, um, because they have to bring in uh, the nutrients to apply to their field. And then they have to ship out the manure that their cows are making and their polluting bodies of water. And they have to feed the cows and they have to, you know, it's it's this very complex system that we've intentionally separated in order to maximize profit mm -hmm. for each corporation, right? And and if a farmer had a choice to build soil health, they absolutely would, but they can't because that might break the contract with the person who owns the land that they're farming or you know, if they could treat their their chickens better, they would, but they would then be breaking the contract with Purdue. So if we removed the economy, or not the economy, right, because we, we need markets, but if we removed turning the a profit, profit yeah, from, from this thing that's, like, necessary for everyone to live, I feel like we'd be a lot closer <laughs> to solving climate change, Um so I, I brought this up to a different researcher that I thought this was kind of a funny interaction and like, hey, why aren't we scientists dreaming? And it was it's funny because he's like this very well-respected person in the ecological engineering community. And he said, well, if we removed economic incentive, how do you expect researchers to innovate? And I, I was like, so are you saying it's the only motive? It's the only yeah. motive? I said, yeah. so if your food and housing and your children's education, if all of that was taken care of and you could do anything you wanted, you wouldn't be trying to research solutions to problems? And he said, well, no, that kind of is my situation. He's really well paid. He's like, that's essentially what happens. And and I'm still doing research. I was like, right. So why don't you think that could happen with other people? It's, it's just this really, uh, I don't know. It almost feels mm. like people 
people had their hope taken away a really long time ago. And I don't know why, but I, that's the part. It's not climate change that I find depressing. It's a lack of hope and dreaming that really gets me. Yeah. I think that one of the things, one of the things that happened was that after World War II, when big government saved America, when big government was FDR and taxes were levied on the richest people at 96.8%, and there were between 11 and 15 million people then hired at good salaries to do the things America needs, beautify it, build things, fix things, you know, create energy systems that were safe. That was big government. And I think the capitalists after FDR died and the war was over created McCarthyism so that anything collective was suspect. Communism was traitorous. Socialists were fellow travelers. Unions were suspect because they are unified. The left was kicked out of the unions. And they started to publicize that the enemy is the government. I remember seeing a demonstration somewhere down south where people had signs, get the government out of my Medicare. Hello, honey. That's what the government is giving you. <laughs> but it's such bad publicity that the government is vilified while the corporations behind the scenes are chuckling and taking your money. And so that we would need a unified movement to say, that's a lie. We need each other. That's what we got with FDR, who was the most popular president in history. Wake up. They did it to us. Take it back and expose that we need not a lousy government. We need good government. And this is how we can have it. We can make demands from our government to take care of us. That's right. Like, Absolutely. I mean, to that point, so I, I come from a really conservative family and, uh, you know, none of them are happy with how the coronavirus has been handled, especially because a lot of them are the ma managerial class and this is really hurting their businesses. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I was talking to, to one of my relatives about this and, and a big thing they do is they shrug and they go, yeah, this just sucks, but there's nothing we can do about it, huh? Which no, that's not true. I mean, I think Richard Wolff has had a lot of a lot of really good analyses on how we could have done this a lot better. Um, but I, so putting aside mobilizing our government, one of the things, you know, someone I'm really close to said was, well, we've been through something this bad before. We were talking about the huge economic depression we're going to and we're going to continue going through. Mm -hmm. and, and she said, we've gone through it before and we survived. And it, it was astounding to me. This is, you know, a 55-year-old, right? So they've been alive longer than me. They've seen more time go by. And there was, for some reason, this huge disconnect that the way that we went through a huge depression before is like you were saying, Harriet, the New Deal, right? And on top of that... We didn't all get through it. A lot of people died before we got there, before they decided to put in measures that would create a middle class and stop the country from revolting. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just, it's wild that, you know, that we've reached a point where so many people don't realize that, that the point of the government is to do the things that we as individuals really can't do. They're a, a great organizing structure and they can distribute wealth in a way that can take care of far more people. But instead they see it as, as someone, you know, like you were saying earlier, taking their rights away um, rather than giving them freedom from certain things, you know, making their lives worse. It's just the, the cognitive dissonance is just crazy. But here, this Sam, what do you I'm sorry. Here the stats are on your side. They're, you know, the top 1% in the last 20 years has gotten 160% increase in their assets. And they were allowed to outsource and then they were allowed to come back and buy our government. And that's because we didn't have mass movements to stop them. 
And it should be pointed out that FDR didn't do these things just because he was a sweet guy. He did these things because he could threaten the corporations that they, they would be, there will be a revolution here because hundreds of thousands were marching in the streets. And as I like to say, because I never heard it in history and found out, it blew my mind, that the Iowa militias and similar militias were killing judges that condemned family farms. Things were serious. And people were demonstrating. And so he could create a 96.8% tax. And of course, no allowance to put your money in the Cayman Islands. And that's mm -hmm. what the government did for us so that we, we can just go back into our own history and remember. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's astounding how that seems to have been wiped from the memory of, of an entire generation. Mm. Um, yeah. They don't well, I, think, learn I think that was intentional personally, yes. but yeah. um, well, on the, on the concept of the new, of the new deal, Sam, do you have any thoughts on the proposed green new deal that AOC and others have been trying to push the last few years? Marky. This is going to sound so silly, but I have not looked at that at all. <laughs> Well, Isn't that wild? No, well, shame on you. To look at. <laughs> Canceled. No, there's, yeah. a, there's a lot to look at. No, just mm -hmm. look at it. It's encouraging. And if people yeah. get behind it, and you know, no one who supported Medicare for All and the Green New Deal lost in the last elections. So, you know, there is some hope out there. <laughs> I'm going to name drop... A, I can't actually think of what it was. It was a Jacobin uh, YouTube talk thing, but I, uh, I hate when my memory does this. It's like I sort of know the thing, but I don't know the names of anything. It, it was something about like how um, it was a talk about the Green New Deal by a critical kind of labor person saying that we needed to redefine the Green New Deal as like basically just a jobs program mm. um, and was critiquing the environmental movement as speaking mainly to kind of the PMC, like meaning the professional managerial mm. kind of class strata, um, like 350.org and all the big, you know, Sierra Club and all that is typically talking to like middle, mm -hmm. middle class, you know, middle, upper, white, you know, kind of like Americans on like, you know, like you were saying, Sam, buy an electric car. So it speaks to a certain kind of demographic uh, within the U.S. And he was saying like, the whole thing needs to be reframed as a jobs program, which is the what the initial um, point of it was, which is why it was called the Green New Deal. It was supposed to be um, your guaranteed a job in energy, infrastructure, sustainable farming, you know, retrofitting, uh, making, you know, energy efficient jobs for housing, which is like construction and trade jobs. Um, and it was all going to be like union jobs and everything. Um, so I can't remember what the talk was, but if you search like YouTube, uh, Jacobin, Green New Deal or something like that, it's a really great talk on it. And I thought it was a good argument for saying like, because look, if we do need all hands on deck and we need like a mass kind of working class movement pushing for, um, you know, climate yeah. solutions, then you can't, you can't just be talking to like middle class white people in the suburbs or whatever, right? Like that's not actually the yeah. right... Because that's kind of been the, the Democratic Party's um, yeah. pretty crappy strategy for a long time, right? Is just talking to kind of people that read The New Yorker or whatever and saying we can just rely yeah. on their votes um, and expect like black people to just vote wherever there's like large segments of black population and just like assume, just take for granted that we have these votes or whatever. But um, I thought that was a cool talk. It, it was. And also we have two capitalist parties. That has to change. Somebody yeah. has to be, that's why the Democrats who have the same corporate sponsors as the Republicans do the same thing, but more slowly, screw people. And so that yeah. we have to have an alternative. And I think people are ready for an alternative, which is why so many people chose a crazy fascist alternative like Trump within the narrow band of choices. He was the most outrageous, the most different and the most no business as usual, even though he was a fascist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, but what he did was he he named problems. He said, y'all are mm -hmm. struggling and I can make the jobs that will protect. Not that he did that. He absolutely no. didn't do that. But I, I do think and, you know, that comes up a lot with the people I talk to. I think that was really the power he had was yes. the knowledge that there's a, that there's a problem. Right. Um, 
He did. And people want desperately to be acknowledged in their reality. And he did that for them, even though he undermined them at the same time. Yeah. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, Hillary's take was, no, we're, we're fine. We're okay. This is all good. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep being good guys. Don't even sweat it. Um, which right. as you're saying, does it speaks to a very small, small, but more powerful portion of the country. If you're looking at it monetarily. Um, That's true. No, she, I, she called the mass of people a basket of deplorables. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not going to win anyone over. Um, I, I agree. I mean, like I said, I have not read the Green New Deal, but but if that's the mm-hmm. premise, I mean, that's kind of the solution that that I think of is, yeah, something that, that matches people who need jobs to places that need energy and things that need to be manufactured, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would require government investing a lot in its own population. God forbid we do that yeah. instead of investing in our military. But um, yeah, the capital's mm-hmm. there. And, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine who's like a very prestigious chemical engineer who works on carbon capture technology. Um, I was talking to him about talking to you guys about this. And I was like, so, I mean, how does it make you feel? And he was like, well, you know, the thing is, the technology exists and the money is there. There's a reason why it's not being taken care of. And it's because that would hurt rich people. Right. Right. Like, yeah. He's like, are you taking notes on this? And I said, yeah, I'm going to say what you said verbatim. And he said, that's going to make rich people very upset. Don't say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's something that we can absolutely crush. We can like crush our response to climate change. We can make people's lives so much better. I think we can kill a billion birds with one stone. Um, I thought Naomi Klein has had some really good takes on capitalism versus the climate and, you know, her, her follow-up books from that. Um, Mm -hmm. Lee Phillips wrote a really interesting book called Austerity Ecology and the Collapse Porn Addicts, where he kind Mm -hmm. of criticizes Naomi Klein's take as as a little too fluffy, but but regardless, the theme of both of those is we just need to organize better and distribute resources equitably and yep. and be thoughtful with how we're investing our energy and our time and our resources. And I think it's absolutely possible. It would just like you're saying, Harriet, require that our two major parties weren't in the pockets of corporations um that's right citations needed citations needed had an episode kind of recently i guess Mm. a couple weeks Mm -hmm. ago where they talked about climate change and they they specifically talked about how nancy pelosi talks a lot about climate change but calls any bill that's that's meant to address climate change um unrealistic or naive or you know not attainable and that, that's it. Like, that's that's the Democratic Party. It's going to talk a lot about how things are good, and then it's going to, you know, keep turning them down because that would help that's people. Right. That would hurt them. Yeah. That's right. She's happy to do that. And she's the one who said there is no alternative to capitalism. So that's off the books for her. But it isn't for the mass of the American people. Now, yeah. In terms of a summary, I think what we've all concluded together is that we need a socialist presence in which class transformation and priority transformation is for the right to life on a planet that exists Mm -hmm. with all of the issues tied together and all of us working together to create it. Mm And uh, my summary statement is that climate change uh, gives me depression and anxiety, and I should (laughs) probably talk to a professional about that. And so as soon as we sign off, I'm going to I'm going to call somebody up and get some professional help because that's the solution. Yeah, the solution to the climate crisis is to talk to your therapist. And that's a joke. I'm making a joke. It is not a solution. No, <laughs> Although I guess not. it couldn't it couldn't hurt. Actually, this is a, a rabbit hole, maybe for another time. Is like, do pe- actually okay, list, dear listeners who are listening, do you feel comfortable talking about climate anxiety with your therapist for those who are seeing therapists or not? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Um, yeah, because I don't. I, yeah, I don't actually trust most therapists to actually. That's true. Seem to give a shit. 
<laughs> frankly. That's right. We ought to put out a list of therapists yeah, who, yeah. who care beyond their own tiny world of right, their own mind. Right. Yeah, it would be yeah. helpful. But that's, we don't need... We don't need to, I know we're supposed to close, so sorry to open it, a whole new can of worms. But, um, you know, if anybody wants to email us on that, so I guess that's so to be to close out. If you want to email us, our email is it's not just in your head at gmail.com. And if you want to support the podcast, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash it's not just in your head. And, and I think that's it. Oh, and thank you, Liam, for helping us with the editing and the social media now. Yes, thank you, yeah. Liam. I think that's it. If I yeah. could, sorry, if I could say real quick, so yeah. I, I am in therapy and this is why I loved your podcast is I mm. would not talk to my therapist about this. She, I don't think would be able to engage with me very well about this existential crisis imposed on the entire human race. But I reached yeah. out to you guys because I figured you, you would agree that this one, this one is a little bigger than just talking to it a sure therapist. Is. It um, sure yeah, is. Yeah. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. So thank yeah, you guys absolutely. for taking the time to talk to me about this. It's something I'm, <laughs> I'm really passionate about, and I feel very validated now. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, well, thanks for helping me with my depression. Um, <laughs> inappropriate boundaries or something, client, therapist. Okay, anyway. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye, everybody. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.